We'll start, as always, by taking a look at the Sunday papers and our panel in studio this morning. Dan O'Brien, the Chief Economist with the Institute for International and European Affairs and Columnist with Independent Newspapers. Dan, good morning. Good morning. Jennifer Kavanagh is a law lecturer in Waterford IT and expert in the area of constitutional law and politics, no less. Good morning, Jennifer. Morning. And Michael Nugent, Chairman of Atheist Ireland, among many other things. You're very welcome to the studio and a Leeds fan, I know, as well. uh, Yeah, going well. Leeds (laughs) and Bohemians. I I picked my football teams as a child on the basis of future financial irresponsibility <laughs> <laughs> and you picked a long suffering life as a result <laughs> uh, we'll get into the papers of the panel in a few minutes but first as always the, the front paper front pages of the papers and there's plenty in them today we'll start with the Sunday Times uh, which has had everyone looking for it the board of the FAI no less waiting for this story this morning and Mike Tai has uh, the main story we'll speaking to him in a few minutes Delaney racked up 40,000 euro spending on FAI credit card is the headline John Delaney the executive vice president of the FAI spent almost 40,000 on his work credit card in the last six months of 2016 and there's plenty of detail in that some expensive hotels the Ritz in New York and Dubai taking money out of ATM of its €6,000 in cash over a six-month period and plenty more. We will get into the detail of that. Another interesting story in the front page of the Times, actually. Spillane has ring-benched me, the former um, All-Ireland winning footballer, Pat Spillane had a role as an ambassador for the Rural Affairs Minister Michael Ring but he hasn't had any contact from him in four months and just wants to know has he been put on the bench another Kerry Mayo row spouting there John Delaney also on the front of the Sunday Independent Delaney to go as 5 million euro grant at risk a friend says he'll quit the FAI but keep you away for a job Euro 2020 Aviva grant threatened by a 100k cloud and there's plenty more details in the Irish Independent about that the John Delaney across many of the front pages as well on the front page of The Sun probably the best headline of the lot so far the John goodbye he tells pals I'm leaving the FAI but not UEFA a few more stories on the front pages that are quite interesting the Sunday Independent goes with uh, row as child actors to play homeless children child actors are to reenact the experiences of children living in emergency accommodation to raise awareness around homelessness in an event which has sparked some controversy uh, they also have a recreation on the inside of a front page from 70 years ago to celebrate the anniversary of the Republic of Ireland external relations act to go was the headline on that day September 5th in 1948 which is a nice little recreation of the paper from 70 years ago available in the Sindo today the Sunday business post John Delaney doesn't make the front page but a few more interesting stories on that private patients to get cancer drugs that denied to the public for the first time and this is the story that patients with VHI health insurance are now able to access new cancer drugs that are not available to public patients creating an official two-tier divide for the first time so good news I suppose if you're a VHI customer but if you are public it kind of creates a, a worrying precedent that we we might get into a bit more later. Health also on the front page in form of the Children's Hospital yet again. The hospital at legal risk after tender documents were destroyed. And this is the story from Michael Brennan and Emmett Oliver that the National Children's Hospital project has been left exposed to significant risk by the irregular destruction of all the tender documents submitted by unsuccessful bidders for that. Uh, Fine Gael's undercover attack on Martin exposes a story by Hugh O'Connell on the front page that yesterday, or on Friday rather, when we had Micheál Martin on News Talk Breakfast, a Fine Gael WhatsApp group was lighting up with messages and uh, questions they wanted to get into Micheál Martin. Martin. We'll have plenty more on that coming up later as well. But now, before we talk to our panel, we're going to hear more about that Sunday Times story from Mark Ty. Uh, but first, though, let's just remind ourselves of what the Taoiseach had to say about John Delaney and the FAI on Friday about Delaney's approach to questions he was asked by the Oireachtas Committee during the week. 
I don't think anyone would be satisfied by it. I think the uh, public, taxpayers, um, football fans would have liked to have seen those questions being answered. Um, but the truth is, uh, he was within his legal rights uh, not to answer those questions because he's not a public servant and therefore uh, is not accountable to the Oireachtas. However, FAI is accountable uh, to the ODC, the Officer Director of Corporate Enforcement, and is accountable uh, to Sport Ireland for the public money they get. Uh, and I know those bodies will have uh, questions to ask of FAI, which I think need to be answered. The Taoiseach Leo Varadkar speaking late on Friday and you can be sure there'll be more questions that need to be answered on the back of the Sunday Times front page story this morning. And we're joined now by the journalist who wrote that story, Mark Ty. Mark, good morning. Morning, Sean. For those who haven't seen it or read it yet, can you just lay out the detail of what's in your piece today? Yes, so uh, we have a report on um, FAI spending and a large part of our story is about spending that John Delaney has incurred using his FAI credit card. We've looked at a six-month period um, from July 2016 to December 2016, where uh, John Delaney uh, racked up about €40,000 in ex- expenditure on his credit card, from things as diverse as uh, flights to a uh, €400 Euro charge in Tommy Hilfiger stores, to um, over €500 Euro on Plux's local pub in Kilmacanog, and over €6,000 in cash withdrawals over those six-month period. And as well, some pretty swanky hotels by the look of it. Yeah, um, like on top of the uh, credit card expenditure, we've uncovered a €8,000 bill that the FAI settled in December 2015 for the uh, Ritz-Carlton Hotel, the exclusive New York um, Central Park Hotel, a five-star establishment, you know, it's uh, one of the most exclusive hotels really in the world, you know, where people get a lot of choice and variety. There's even a pillow menu for... Um, the residents there, soundproof windows to keep out the New York traffic and, you know, an extensive uh, service. So, you know, this is the type of spending we've uncovered. And, you know, John Delaney also put um, a uh, €4,500 um, charge to the Ritz Carlton when he stayed in Dubai in, um, that was December 2016. And there's a number of other hotel charges like, and, and, and restaurant bills that we, we found uh, that were paid out through the FAI credit card. And to emphasize again, this is an, an FAI credit card. What else was he doing? There was some serious cash withdrawals. Yeah, so this was kind of one of the most curious aspects um, of it. There was over 40 uh, cash withdrawals in, in sums ranging kind of between €100 Euro to €250. Euro. Sometimes, you know, withdrawals, three withdrawals in one day, um, where, you know, cash up to €600 Euro would have been withdrawn. And, you know, we asked the FAI, um, what, what's the story behind these cash withdrawals? Um, so he, is, is this in line with policy? Did he provide receipts for the expenditure subsequently? And we, we got a, a one-line response from the FAI on Friday saying no comment. Um, and I'm sure people will have a lot of further questions about that. Yeah, because a lot of it, I mean, a lot of big companies would have these credit cards, the CEOs would be going to these kind of events. But the, the, some of them, for example, his campaign for UEFA to get a spot, which was a successful campaign in the end, but that was came at quite a cost to the FAI. Yes, so th- this, pe- this period in question where we looked at um, in most detail is just before he got elected to the UEFA Council in uh, April 2017, I think it was. So yeah, in the run-up to this, he was doing a lot of travelling uh, so a lot of flights, and you know the FAI uh, may say, well, "Look, this, we're, we're happy, John. It was uh, given the okay to, you know, spend money on duty free, to spend money in these shops, um, to spend money on these restaurants and hotels as he travelled the world, and you know that it was all for the greater good of the, the football association because you know John's out doing um, work and meeting people, and 
we're, we're happy with that. But I think, you know, fans and uh, Sport Ireland and others would be interested to say, well, you know, this is the this is what it's allowed in terms of financial expenditure uh, by an organisation that has to be bailed out just after this um, to the tune of €100,000 by John Delaney in a, a story we previously revealed that came, um, you know, in April 2017 that the, the FBI was so broke that it needed a, 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 an emergency kind of loan from John Delaney and that's been subsequent, subsequently the uh, subject of a Office of Director of Corporate Enforcement um, investigation, which is which is ongoing, and a number of internal FAI uh, reports have been commissioned onto that into that as well. Finally, then, Mark, you've been all across this story for the last few weeks. Reports of the last twenty four hours that John Delaney is going to step down and leave the organisation. Uh, what are you hearing? Are the more meetings going on today? Yeah, I, th- I, I think the the FAI board um, wanted to see what was in the Sunday Times today, and I think there will be further meetings um, today and tomorrow, and conference calls. Um, yeah, we've heard the same reports that you know friends of John Delaney have received text messages indicating that he would be leaving the FBI, but there's no there's no hard uh, confirmation on, on what's actually happening on that front. Speaking right now, for, to my knowledge. Okay, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Mark Ty of the Sunday Times. And I'm joined now by the panel in studio: Dan O'Brien, Jennifer Cavanagh, and Michael Nugent to pick up more of this. Uh, Michael, we might start as you, as the, the long-suffering Leeds fan, to get more <laughs> into this. Uh, what do you make of the coverage today? Quite a lot of John Delaney across the front pages. It is, yeah, and it, it's you have to go back really decades to see that the FAI has been a consistently exploding clown's car of incompetence and messing around with cash. If you go back as far as the 1980s, Owen Hand became manager of Ireland by one swing vote against Paddy Mulligan because one of the FAI council thought that Paddy Mulligan was the person who had thrown a bun at him at one of the away trips. (laughs) And uh, then they appointed Jack Charlton by accident when they were trying to appoint Bob Paisley. Because it's always been bad accidents. and, And then you had, well, that's true. They got the one thing they got right, they got right by accident. And then, but but then you had in '94, and this is where the the the, the royal house of Delaney <coughs> is like some sort of um, you know, medieval European royal family. That, that John Delaney's dad had to resign from the FAI because he he had to give back over a hundred thousand to the FAI uh, back in '94 after the FAI were eff- effectively touting tickets in in the um, in the World Cup in in, in America. And uh, he gave £100,000 worth of tickets to a, a tout called George the Greek, who unsurprisingly did a runner with tickets. So this has been going on for ages. And, and it, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, um, it's appropriate that the, the Royal House of Delaney is finally being defenestrated. Yeah, very comprehensively across the front pages as well. Uh, Jennifer, we've seen a lot of detail about the spending and particularly the credit card spending. Have you ever had the pleasure of staying in a hotel that offered you a choice of pillows from a menu? Actually, there's quite a few hotels that do offer a choice of pillows now at this stage. It's it's not just the really posh ones. But just picking up there on uh, what was said that Bernard O'Byrne was asked to stand down by John Delaney because of credit card spending. Mm. So, I mean, history just keeps repeating itself. And at the end of the day, Whatever Delaney's defence is, whatever comes out in further reporting, whether he decides to stay in the position he's in or not, taking away the grants, it's affecting the people who are just going out of a Saturday trying to have a, a semi-professional kick about the kids who are trying to learn football. They're the ones who are suffering at the end of this. Mm. And if people are, are in those positions are so in love with the game of football, they should be keeping that in the back of their minds when they're making their future decisions. Mm. Because it's not just, as I said, the people who are in there in an amateur capacity, just playing football, the kids, the parents, the coaches. It's also affecting, say, the Euro 2020 with that. uh, They're saying the grant may not go through for the five million. And if they love the game that much, maybe it's time to step back 
and leave the game take precedence, not the politics of the organisation. Yeah. Is this, Dan, really going to come down to money? Now that the sponsors are starting to shake, now that the Sport Ireland have held out their money, that's going to be the death of John Delaney if it does come. Look, I have no expertise in the FAI or pillows or that sort of stuff, so I'll leave that to the <laughs> other panellists. Uh, my interest in this is related to the Oireachtas committees, which if you want to come back to that, maybe I'll chip in on that. But uh, what the details of all of this, I know it's 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 it gets a lot of headlines and people are interested in it, but I personally I'm not, uh, I have no expertise in the area, so I'll hang back on it. Well, well, let's get into a bit of that on the Oireachtas committee, because I did want to ask you about that. It was a joke during the week. It was a farce and a facile attempt to actually get answers out of John Delaney and the FAI. And we've seen the warnings to other Oireachtas chairs. This might not be the only time this happens. People can now go in and cite legal advice or cite other things and we'll see it affect other committees because they've all been warned. So has our Oireachtas effectively been neutered this week? Well, that, that's, to my mind, a much bigger issue around this. Um, it, it always strikes me as really strange in this country. We don't compare how our parliamentary committees operate compared to other countries. Uh, there's a, Justine McCarthy has a good piece in the Times on it, makes many interesting points. One area I would take issue with her, she says, the question is over whether politicians can be trusted with the sort of powers we entrust judges. My argument be, would be is, can we trust politicians to have the sort of powers that politicians in other countries have? Now, we see this in, I, I write about it in my own column today, and raised two recent cases, Mark Zuckerberg in the US, uh, who was held before uh, um, a committee on Capitol Hill for 10 hours over two days, and a few years ago when Rupert Murdoch was brought before a committee in the Commons. Um, there is no perfect way of holding people to account in, in an open society, but having strong parliament, parliamentary committees are one way. Politicians grandstand everyone everywhere. They, they grandstand like normal people breathe. That is a given everywhere. We seem to have this obsession that only our politicians grandstand and only in our country is there a downside of this. Of course it's a downside and politicians have abused that privilege. But overall, in the grander scheme of things, we need a system of accountability. We haven't done that very well here. Neutering our parliamentary committees and the recent Kearns judgment by the Supreme Court, I think, has gone down a very dangerous route. I think the Supreme Court has overstepped its position. It has breached the separation of powers by interfering and making, 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 uh, taking a position on parliamentary committees, which it should not be doing, in my view. And the High Court got that right. The Supreme Court got it wrong. That is the much bigger issue, uh, in my view, rather than John Delaney's expenses and, uh, um, and, and the, the stuff that's getting most headlines. Uh, well... Just on the Oireachtas Committees, considering that is some people of Star Wars, I have constitutional protections <laughs> and parliamentary <laughs> privilege as my version of being a Star Trek person. If you carefully read the Kearns judgment, they did say that it is left to the absolute privilege of politicians when they are in the chambers to investigate these issues. But where they have gone beyond what is constitutionally permissible in extreme cases. That's where they will have to step in. And that's what they did with Callaly. That's what they did with Maguire uh, and Arda. And I think we have to wait until the second part of that judgment comes out to see for definite where the line has now been established. Oh, can I just so that is a work in progress yeah. because they've held it up in the Dennis O'Brien case to say absolute privilege will be absolute privilege. But when you look at the doll, when you look at the Shannon, they have the powers under Article 15 to have their own rules. 
there is that gap there when it comes to the committees. So really what the committee should be doing is ensuring that they have strong standing orders like the Dawn the Shandard where they know where the dividing line is and it will be a case until the second part comes out that they, they will probably go back a little bit further into the comfort zone of making sure they're completely in line with the constitution. But once we get the second part, then we'll know exactly where the dividing line is. Okay, so well, let's, let's, it's, it's, a, it's a halfway house at the moment. Let's, as you say, the first judgment, what was striking in the first judgment, how many non-Irish precedents were mentioned in the first judgment? Well, that would mean I'd need a photographic memory, but the main points are the Constitution, okay, Article 15. Okay, a solitary one, and it was a US case going back 211 years. Now, my point is that if you go to other countries, you won't see the courts interfering in parliamentary processes in the way that ours but has done. But you won't see in other Lara, countries interpreting the Irish Constitution. In, including in um, uh, the other, case, uh, 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 other cases. So what's striking here is that the courts in this country are taking a view on the conduct of parliament, which is elected, judges aren't, in a way that doesn't happen in other countries. And that is a worrying aspect that neuters our parliament and uh, is something that doesn't happen elsewhere. And I think we need more focus on that. Can I just ask you from from an amateur perspective on on the issue? I mean, when John Delaney said that he had legal advice that, that he was precluded from answering questions. Presumably, the furthest he could go was he had legal advice that permitted him to not answer questions rather than precluded him from answering questions. Well, permitting would mean you have an idea of what they would be asking. Yeah, but that he, he could have chosen to answer questions if he, if he, if he wished to. He just yeah, chose not to. Yeah, and the optics of it didn't look great. But if you're looking at it from a pure legal perspective, that's the way the solicitors operate. And yeah. that's the way the lawyers operate. But just on your point to the precedents, by saying that we need other countries' laws to interpret our constitution is an, in effect saying our constitution can't operate as a document of no, its I'm own. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the, the balance of power between the judiciary and the legislature is something that is not only a case in Ireland. Why are we so unusual in that our judiciary interferes in the, in the, in, in, in the breach, breaches the separation of powers and gets involved in, in uh, the legislature in a way that doesn't happen elsewhere? But the point you're, you're both getting to is that the line is now blurred as to what there is a can blur. actually I be done. I completely accept and there's a blurring. We need the second part of the judgment to be clearer on where that line is but going. But this is where, and I think this is where the bigger risk to uh, parliamentary proceedings are, is in terms of the Oireachtas because now you could have, for example, at the moment, Simon, uh, Simon Harris before the Health Committee during the week, he was in to talk about votes and money. He ended up talking about cervical check and talking about all the other issues that are going on in health. But technically, if we're to take this black and white view that the the chairs of the committees have been given, he wouldn't have to answer them. He could say, well, that's not what I'm here for. The Taoiseach does it regularly in the door when he's asked on promised legislation and is asked questions related to other things. So does this not have an overall threatening effect that there is a huge amount more in the Oireachtas that now won't get asked or can't get asked should people push that to go back to Michael's point of I don't have to actually answer it? In the committees, and it depends on who you are being brought before the committees. So, for example, the Angela Kearns case, John Delaney, because they're not public servants, they can actually ha- hold that line now and say, well, actually, I'm only brought before it for this. Whereas, say, accounting officers, say, when you had the query into the expenses in the arse, that was the accounting officer in Taoiseach's, they would have to answer the questions because they would be public servants. Mm, yeah, a lot more, I suppose, clarity needed. Well, like, like, just for, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and, and Rupert Murdoch aren't public servants and they were brought before relevant parliamentary committees in the UK and the US. Uh, there are downsides to that. Uh, but it's a question of balance in terms of getting accountability right. Most countries in the dem- democratic world have got it right. We are going down a bad route 
in the way the Supreme Court, its first judgment on this, uh, has encroached into the area of Parliament, uh, the first among equals amongst the branches of government. Let's just be uh, clear about that, and that it's very important that we have strong parliamentary committees as in other countries. Mm. And Michael, to go back to, as a relative amateur looking at this, I suppose, from the outside and from probably most fans' point of view, what did you make of it during the week, the Oireachtas? Was it a bit facile for you? And do you think that actually by John Delaney resigning, is anything going to be achieved? Does the board need to go as well? Well, first of all, he hasn't resigned yet. And if he does resign, it seems as if he's going to continue on with UEFA. Mm. Um, I, I just think for football fans, it's just part of the ongoing circus. You know, the, we, we don't expect the FAI to act competently. And so that's that's just just the way it is. I mean, I, ultimately, I, I think the only person in in football terms that's come out of it with a lot of credit is Niall Quinn, mm. who said, look, I'm not going to be ap- applying for this this job because under the, cer- the current circumstances, it's just not possible to do it. We need a proper clean out, but we've needed that for decades. Everybody knows that we need a proper clean out and, and a, a new regime with new accountability structures uh, w- within the FAI, because we could have. A, a strong football league here. But bear in mind, is another important thing in one of the papers, I can't remember which it is, 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 is saying that the, the clubs are finally rebelling. Because uh, the, the League of Ireland has been so underfunded and treated so badly by the FAI who are just mm. obsessed with the international junkets that, that they're letting the uh, domestic game fail. Yeah, and that's why O'Connor's uh, story in the Irish Independent as well, where he's saying a second club had problems securing even prize cash that it had from the FAI around that time. More on John Delaney to come. We will be speaking to one of the members of that Oireachtas committee, Noel Rock, later on in the show. And you are listening to News Talks on the Record. Sean Defoe here filling in for Gavin Riley this morning. We'll be back with more from the panel after these. Stick to what I'm doing. I'm rolling it well. Maybe give a little bit more gas. It all depends on the putt. If I'm coming down the hill and you, you just want to, you know, blast it by four or five, six feet, you know, so still got to be cautious on some of the putts. If you're able to hit the ball well and put the ball in the right spots, you got uphill putts here and you can give it a go. Tiger Woods there ahead of the final day of the Augusta Masters and he's just two shots off the leader Francesco Molinari the last pair teeing off at 2.20 this afternoon that's been brought forward due to the weather so finished up a bit earlier this evening if you are staying up and worried about work on the Monday morning we'll have more in the Masters a little bit later in the programme Sean Defoe here filling in for Gavin on the record this weekend we are reviewing the Sunday papers with Dan O'Brien Jennifer Kavanagh and Michael Nugent and the Children's Hospital another one of those stories that has not been going away for the government some more revelations this morning morning on the front of the Sunday Business Post the story from Michael Brennan and Emmett Oliver Children Hospital at legal risk after tender documents destroyed this is the story that the National Children's Hospital has been left exposed to significant risk by the irregular destruction of all the tender documents submitted by the unsuccessful bidders that stories in the Sunday Times as well and more coverage in the Sunday Independent Philip Ryan has the story the top civil servant attended meeting about soaring hospital costs is the story that the senior civil servant Paul Quinn who sat on the board of the National Children's Hospital was called into the department to discuss the project but only after it was revealed that the costs were going hugely up there's obviously been some concern over what he knew he was on the board and also in the department but didn't flag it and where his responsibility lies to department and the actual project itself Uh, Dan you might be able to shed some more light on this is this particularly unusual this shredding of the documents well shredding of documents of anything of any records people need to keep records the Mm. the shredding of documents is is always unusual Um, and just linking it back to our previous thing you know the, the reason we need need a strong public accounts committee is to be able to delve in depth into this sort of thing and why a huge capital project has gone completely off course in terms of how much public money is being spent. I just bring it to a sort of wider point rather than delving into the, the specifics uh, of, of the, the National Children's Hospital. 
the, the, the Department of Health has consistently overrun its budgets in recent years. Um, it's been the worst performing department uh, in that regard. Um, and it hasn't been brought to heel. And again, I think that represents a wider failing of government here to take on public sector interests. Uh, the gov- government's successive governments just don't want to get into a fight. Uh, they'll back down and uh, they'll pay over more taxpayers' money for a quiet life rather than taking things on. Um, and I think, you know, again, you see that in something like public sector pay. Uh, there's no gap in, Brit- in Ireland, in Britain, between p- private and public sector pay. In Ireland, uh, the private sector, on average, uh, earns 40% more than the, pub- the private sector. Uh, again, that to me is just a, a very clear sign of how governments are not willing to stand up for wider national interests, taxpayer interests, and will simply allow these things to run uh, and pay over taxpayers' money for a quiet life. Yeah, and that did seem to be the, the main highlight of the PwC report this week, Jennifer, that the, basically at every level this was flawed. We were hoping it might provide us some sort of a clear answer as to where it went wrong. It seems to be it went wrong at every stage. Yeah, and one of the things that that came up, and you could even draw a parallel to the FAI situation, is people weren't asking questions and they weren't saying why and I want an answer and I want a clear answer because there was issues that was in one of the, uh, I think it was in the, the, the Sunday Business Post, that there was a difference between the different drawings and when they're sending in the quantity surveyors to try and find out how much you know electrical cabling that they needed. Mm. Nobody could actually figure it out. Um, we have so many of these issues that you would have thought by this stage that lessons would have been learnt. But the thing is, nobody seems to be learning anything from these issues. And it's going to be one of the most expensive children's hospitals in the world for one of the smaller countries in the world. It just doesn't make sense. And there's, uh, there was, I mean, so many people are even still saying it's in the wrong place. Look, it's being built where it's being built now. Mm. But people need, need to either just get on and build it because the longer it keeps getting talked about, like, say, the Metrolink to Dublin, or to Dublin Airport, if it was built the minute they started talking about it, we'd be turning a profit on it. So the thing is, there is a need for the children's hospital. And hopefully with all the stuff now they've gone through, that when they open it, they'll actually realise that they have the money to pay the staff. Because there are so many hospital extensions have been built around the country, fabulous buildings, but then they forget, oh no, we forgot to put nurses into it. Yeah, Never mind pipes. Or that they even have the staff to pay in the first place. Exactly, um, exactly. And that report did say, when you're talking about changing location, it did say that retendering at this stage would probably cost more and may even put it off, but it didn't look at moving it to a and different And especially site, now which... with these documents being uh, scrapped, which they really shouldn't have been. Somebody really needs to relook at that issue. Mm. Um, you know, there's going to be legal issues then over that because the other bidders might say, look, we want our documents back. They can't give them back. But the tenders also in the first place were so wildly off what was expected. Yeah. And the point issues system at all sorts of levels. meant that whoever went in with the lowest price, never mind anything else, would be the one who got the contract. Yeah, three three to one weighted against uh, price over quality, which says a lot. So, Michael, what, what's your take on it or anything from the coverage in the papers that stands out to you? Well, I, I like how Dan's point that this isn't my area of expertise and I'm not sure it reflects well on me that my expertise is more in football than in public expenditure. <laughs> I think but, like a lot of people, to be fair. <laughs> but it's... Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it does sound, this is like, um, as, as Jennifer was saying, comparing to the FAI, this is like the FAI on steroids. I mean, the, the, the PwC report itself cost four or five times as much as, as we're talking about John Delaney completely, you know, <laughs> taking or giving back to, to, to the FAI. But it's, uh, I, I agree, I mean, the thing that jumped out at me was, as, you, as you've just mentioned, was, was the weighting that was given to price. And it seems that the company that got the tender 
had had never tendered for anything of that scale and, and had to get permission from its own parent company to tender without a joint venture partner for the, the amount that it, it was tendering for. And then it just uh, continually escalated. But the, the reports seem to suggest that we should have known, well, we, they, etc., should have known that it was going to escalate regardless of who got the, the, the tender. But I, I, I don't know, as I say, it's, it's not my area of expertise, but you would think that somebody would be able to on, on, on a project, that you're talking about one and a half billion that that we you know, that it should be a priority that that we manage to to keep ta- uh, tabs on how, how those types of projects are going. Yeah, and you'd wonder and hope that the lessons have been learned for the broadband plan for the metro for all those other projects coming down the road. It's not the only health story, and arguably not even the biggest health story on the front page of the Sunday Business Post today. Uh, Susan Mitchell with the lead story: the private patients to get cancer drugs denied that are denied to the public for the the first time. Jennifer, I might come back to you on this one. Um, seeming like I mean, good news. Obviously, if you're on VHI, you can now get access to some of these. But if you're not and you don't have private insurance of any kind, it's starting to create a kind of worrying precedent. Completely. It's been argued for so long and now it's pretty much the proof coming out that there's the the two tier health service in Ireland. If you're on a medical card, you're waiting longer. If you're a private patient, you get your consultant referrals faster. It's it's not acceptable in, in a country like this that if it shouldn't be a case that you have to get health insurance to get a good quality healthcare, it should be something that we all pay enough tax in this country, whether it's your VAT or whether it's your uh, income tax, that you should be able to get the same sorts of outcomes. Mm. And it's it's ridiculous that if you're with one particular health insurance provider, because remember, there are many, many more in the market that you would get access to certain more high tech drugs faster. That that just isn't fair. Mm. Uh, Dan, you've obviously made the point about overspending in health. We've seen now this kind of a couple of different times when it comes to drugs that are available to certain people or not or need to be available to people in the country. So why is it the HSE is now quite far behind one of the main insurance providers but in general seems to be behind yeah this is one of the most difficult areas I think and the one area that I really have uh, feel sorry for politicians having said earlier on that the political class has been willing to stand up to best interest this is one of the really difficult areas of, of for politicians new drugs come online all the time uh, because uh, the technology has gone so far most of the big or many of the big diseases are already have 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 um, drugs that deal with them increasingly drugs are coming out for smaller and smaller groups with people who have uh, that are very more rarer and rarer conditions so you could get a situation where in Ireland maybe a hundred people suffer from a very unusual condition drugs companies come out with a new drug that can help improve their lives, even save lives, uh, but the drugs are extremely expensive because they've had to do a lot of research and they can only be sold to a small number of people by definition because not many people have this disease. And then that 100 people lobbies to have uh, the, go- the state provide uh, these these drugs. It may, let's just say it costs a million per person. So there's 100 people um, and it costs 100 million a year. Question is, could 100 million a year save more lives going into primary care, uh, looking at b- better better hospital facilities? It may well do. Mm. But the pressure that builds up on the, on the, on the political system to help a hundred visible people who may be outside the door become something that's impossible to 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 resist. So it's a really really difficult conundrum for for modern politics. I think there's always been that fear of okay, you could used to be able to get by on without having private insurance. Now it's less and less likely, and it's split is something like fifty fifty of people who have it and people who don't. Do you think we're just going to see more of this, the widening of that gap? In, to the point where if you don't have it, you're in a lot of trouble if you let it go wrong. Yeah. Um, look, you know, per person, we spend uh, one of the highest levels uh, on healthcare in the world. Yet, why is it that so many people feel they need to get supplementary 
um, private health health insurance. There's a big problem. I don't. I don't want to say there's. You know, there's a lot that's right in the health system here, in the public health system here. We don't have. You know, outcomes are not radically different from other countries. So you know, a lot is is done right. But in order to reform the system, there would have to be very big changes. And I think the vested interests within the system are simply will push back against that. And the government is not prepared to have strikes, to have industrial action, uh, and to introduce the kind of big reforms that would make the system more productive. I just don't see it happening. So the answer to your question is, I think more and more people will move towards private health insurance. Yeah. Michael, what do you make of this one? Well, I mean, like like many people listening today, I mean, I've had experience of, of cancer. My wife died of cancer some years ago. And, and so, and I, I mean, having gone through that, the thing that strikes me most about this is my wife was diagnosed when she had stage four cancer. Now, this drug from the article in the Business Post today, this new drug, it, it seems to help most with early stage cancer. Mm. Um, and and it's... Um, it, decreases the chance of the cancer recording after surgery if it's, if it's administered in early stages. But the, the, the decision of the state seems to be that it will only fund it for public patients for, for stage four, um, which I know as, as Christopher Hitchens, who died of cancer, said of stage four, but you need to, the main thing you need to know about stage four cancer is there isn't a stage five. You know, so I mean, the, the, the idea that it will be restricted uh, to stage four when it seems to be most useful at the earlier stages Seems a very strange decision to me. Mm. And it is one of those ones where, unfortunately, look, if it's not caught early, if you don't get in there and if you don't have access to that, I mean, that's where we could go further down the line is you waiting longer and longer for an appointment if you don't do your private insurance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, I mean, these things like that particular issue like is, is, is for me and for a lot of people is a very emotional issue. So that probably means that I'm not really looking at it, uh, you know, in, in the objective way that you should when you're talking about decisions like that. But I'd say that seems to me the main thing. I mean, if you can if you can focus whatever public service spending on stages where, where you can catch the cancer early and deal with it. That seems to me far more important than stage four. Mm. Uh, plenty more to come on that. And that, that is in the paper. If you want to break down at the hospital story, Michael Brennan in the Sunday Business Post has a good breakdown of the PwC report and the latest on that. We'll be talking about immigration with our panel in a moment. But first, a few ads. One final question, a text that just come in from Tom in Limerick. Barry's or Lions? <laughs> <laughs> I drink Barry's tea. <laughs> it's a lot of Finnegale tea, uh, Barry's tea. But, you know, look, I'm, I'm a broad church in terms of tea. I actually, as you know, you're tea. a herbal tea man. I'm a, I'm a green tea man. That's Fianna Fáil leader Michal Martin with his very controversial tea views on News Talk Breakfast with Shane and Kieran on Friday, taking some questions from the public. But as I said earlier, the Sunday Business Post has an interesting story from Hugh O'Connell. So Fine Gael obviously got wind of not only that Michal Martin is a, a Barry's tea drinker, but that he was coming on News Talk Breakfast to take some questions from the public. And a WhatsApp group that had been set up got lighting up in basically trying to get tricky questions to Michal Martin on air. Some that included, how can we trust Michal Martin on health? He established the HSE. Will Bert you her and ever run for the Oris and are you feeling the pressure from your own backbenchers it's Fine Gael trying to influence the hallowed halls of news talk towers here I don't think our producers fell for it but I'll, uh, I'll have to listen back I'm sure other parties do it too but look uh, Noel Rock is on with us talk, shortly talking about the FEI we might put uh, that to him see if he's in any of those WhatsApp groups but we are reviewing the papers and one of the big stories that I suppose caught some people's attention this week was in relation to immigration and this is off uh, Pader Tovin's comments at the launch of AIN2 last week when he was talking about the immigration system 
and how we need to manage it. There needs to be, a, I think he was talking about, a sustainable and manageable system of immigration. And it raised a few heckles during the week. It's pretty prominent in the papers. Liam Weeks writing on page 30 of the Sunday Independent that rising immigration concerns won't open the door for AIM2. Although the views may have hardened in Ireland, there's still little to suggest that voters will turn towards Padder Tobin's party. It was pointed out by David Quinn in his piece in the Sunday Times that the issue wasn't raised at all during the speeches last week at the launch and it was in fact a journalist who put it uh, to Padder Tobin afterwards. He's arguing the other side of this saying that we don't talk enough about sustainable immigration that there is a conversation that we're kind of afraid of now all these you know lefty snowflakes are too afraid to actually address the issue uh, and saying uh, he's sorting some different figures from the central statistics office arguing his case saying that in practice almost everyone supports sustainable immigration even if they're scared to say so and uh, the piece is also followed up in the Sunday Business Post on page 12 by Stephen Kinsler who is breaking down some more of the figures but Dan you were writing as well about this during the week uh, you were arguing for quite similar to Stephen you, you might explain what, what you were writing well like a whole number of things I, I think it, you know immigration in most countries has become a big political issue in Ireland it's not uh, it hasn't become a major political issue none of the parties have uh, over recent years sought to make a different take a different position uh, on it um and, you know, from speaking to politicians, I don't hear it comes up that much on the doorsteps. It does come up from what politicians say, but it doesn't come up that much. So it doesn't seem to be as big an issue in, in Ireland as elsewhere. That said, um, it is a huge change. Um, there are lots of issues around it. There are many good sides to immigration and there are downsides to immigration. Um, I think we should be able to talk about it uh, openly. Um, to some extent in recent years, I think it's polarised, become part of the culture wars. You're either pro-immigration and pretend that there can be no downside to it or you're anti-immigration and some of the reaction I got to the piece I wrote during the week was um, some really strange stuff. Apparently there's something called replacement immigration, that there's a conspiracy theory to replace the population of Ireland with farm people. Uh, look, I, you know, I don't know, don't think uh, that's, uh, I pretty know, well, know that that's not the case. But there's, there's, there are strange views on it. So, um, you know, my piece was sort of setting out that there are three big parts to the immigration piece in Ireland, mostly from EU. Uh, there's another part is refugees, and we're signed up to an international treaty on refugees, so we take refugees. And then there's the part that we control ourselves, uh, which is giving work permits to people. And that mm. seems to me to be the area where there could be uh, most debate. As, uh, Michael, do you think there's somewhat of a two-tier debate nearly on this, is that we are quite happy if we're giving out work permits to the people who are coming working in the silicone docks and those kind of immigrants, and there's other kind of immigrants we don't really want? Yeah, I, I think that I, I would be more an internationalist than a nationalist on these issues. I, I'd be very much on the liberal end of immigration and emigration. Uh, but but that said, I, I do agree with David Quinn that, that you should be able to discuss it and you should be able to articulate an opposing view without people going straight to your Hitler, you know, which, which, which seems to be, unfortunately, political discourse. On issues like this, it's kind of like I mean, Brexit in in England has has exacerbated a bit that just everything gets polarized. There, there's no middle ground. There's no attempt to to try to work towards a, a, a rational compromise on on issues. So so while I would be uh, very pro immigration, I would also be I would also be very pro um, state security. And and there's there's a very a couple of significant articles in in one in the Business Post um, about people from ISIS coming back to European countries uh, and you know there's one case that's well documented here uh, and um, there are several 
Muslim imams saying, you know, we need to be careful about this. We we, we don't want th- these people are not welcome in our mosques if if they come back. So again, then that's that's an area that, that if you get into suddenly you're an Islamophobe. You know, even uh, Muslim imams who are saying that will be described as being. Islamophobes. So I think that there's, as you say, that there's two different areas there. There's the, the, the substantive issue of how do we deal with, with immigration? And then there's the issue of how do we deal with discussing immigration, mm. which gets in the way of dealing with the actual problem. We'll have to save that clip because it's not very often you agree with David Queen on the, <laughs> his columns in this studio. <laughs> another, another area, if, if we're mentioning, he also does agree that, that the, uh, the religious oath for um, president and judges and members of the council of state should be removed. So I may as well publicise his agreement on that as well. So you're listing off all the things you now agree get them out of the way early uh, Jennifer aside from that that shocker he's just hopped on us there do you agree with David and David Quinn arguing what's not unreasonable I suppose in his column this morning that in practice almost everyone supports the sustainable immigration that Patrick Tobin was talking about yeah but there's just one point with immigration that everyone forgets but it comes out very very clearly on Stephen Kinsella's table is uh, that when you look at it the amount of Irish coming home is always at least 20% of the immigration that's coming in. Because when people think about immigration, they have a certain picture in their head that doesn't necessarily reflect reality. And then there's another issue that a lot of people say that the people who are coming over say who don't speak English. One of the things that was in Stephen Kinsler's article was that the government office that's supposed to look after all this, they don't actually have a budget for integration. So if you come over here from a different country, you don't speak English, there is there's nothing there to facilitate you learning the language. But one thing to say on immigration, and it's not actually in the pieces, Ireland used to have a system of uh, re-entry visas. So if you're here uh, just living as a foreign national and you were from outside the EU area, you were charged to go home and come back again. And you had to queue up on the keys down in Dublin to get your visa to come in and out. And finally, that is gone. So that's one good thing on immigration. It's just your normal uh, Garda National Immigration Service card will get you in and out because it was really making life very hard for people who are coming over here to make a life for themselves. Say if they're coming over from India, they need to pay money to the state to go back for their Christmas holidays which was ridiculous. The the European Commission actually published a a very good report just last week or the week before. Um, It's it's a kind of 20-year vision of where the European Union is going and it has that whole thing of population. But population changes in terms of an ageing population in Europe and a kind of youth bulge in Africa Mm. and different uh, demographics. It has it up there with, you know, climate change and mm. uh, technology as as the issues that really need to be addressed over the next 20 years as, as the EU moves forward. Uh, Dan, in the programme before us, uh, taking stock with Vincent Wall, they were talking about the economics of immigration and the policies of of nativism and the narrative on immigrants, whether it be like generational or, you know, in the US or whatever it is, that it's still the same, that we were a nation of immigrants and and subsequently immigrants coming back now. This isn't actually new. We've been dealing with it for years. Well, we we have been traditionally a nature of people who've left rather than uh, there's been much less inward migration into Ireland over the centuries, the decades anyway, certainly since the famine, than people leaving. So Ireland was a very homogenous country ethnically up to about 20, 25 years ago, and then things changed a lot with the with the Celtic Tiger. I think one of the reasons the, that, that uh, immigration hasn't been such a big issue in Ireland is we've been unusual in the level of education and skills of immigrants in Ireland. Uh, across Europe, the proportion of immigrants to Ireland are much more likely to have third level qualifications even than Irish people and we're the most educated population in in Europe. 
So that's quite different than in, in countries, particularly where there's been a higher level of refugees like Sweden, people coming from the Middle East often, uh, where people have, have, have come from war-torn areas where there are lower levels of education uh, achievement, that uh, it's different in, in countries like Sweden. Uh, Im- immigration levels of education are much lower here, they're much higher, which means people are working, more likely to be working, more likely to be paying taxes, more likely to be, to be contributing into the kitty, the broader kitty. And I think that makes an, a difference on how people view immigrants. Mm. Picking up on that then, Jennifer, is there not a risk, and this is something that Aintu were talking about during the week, that with these highly skilled and educated immigrants that are coming in and the people who are fleeing London because of Brexit, the strain on the housing market, the strain on infrastructure is there because mm. you have people coming in at quite a high price point in terms of living standards yep. and pushing people who can't afford it in, in you know, more average wage jobs down the line. But that that's just an issue with housing supply and whether I I would honestly think that even if you didn't have a large amount of immigration coming in, be it Irish coming back with, you know, for good paying jobs, you're still going to have a problem. You're still going to have a, a problem with the health service. So when people start trying to push it all onto immigration, sometimes I would tend to question their motives because it's always been a problem. The health service was always a problem. And just because there's more people coming in to live in Ireland, we have we have a fairly sustainable uh, population growth anyway. So it's something you're always going to have a problem with. So trying to put it on to immigration, I wouldn't think would be the right thing to do. Finally, then, Michael, it's been argued as well that it, this is just a political point. You know, if they saw Aintu saw Peter Casey got 23 percent on back of some of his his comments. They're going down that line. We've seen the far rise, right rise up in other countries. Do you think there's any sort of political appetite in Ireland for that kind of stuff? No, I, I think we've seen where uh, Brexit has brought England, which is the, the natural conclusion of this type of isolationism. And it's not a pretty place. I, I think we need to be more internationalist. And I think that the, the balance that we need to get is, is, is being able to welcome immigration while protecting liberal, democratic, universal values. And I think if we can get that balance, then, then that's what we need to do. Mm. And you also very briefly wanted to mention the, the documentary during the week, Michael McDool's documentary. Oh, yeah, very important documentary. It's still available on RTE Playback. It's it's about uh, Rome versus Republic and about how essentially, we, we I mean, we're so used to the status quo that we've got a blind spot about how outrageous it is that we've essentially got an, an organisation that's been involved in in criminal activities and covering up criminal activities, having huge influence over our state over decades and still running 90% of our primary schools. It's an issue that we really need to address. And it's still available on the player. If you haven't caught up with it, it is actually well worth watching. Even some of the archive footage is fascinating in itself. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much to my panel. Dan O'Brien, Chief Economist with the Institute for International and European Affairs and Economist with Independent Newspapers. Jennifer Cavanagh, Law Lecturer in Waterford IT. And Michael Nugent, the Chairman of Atheist Ireland as, men as, as well as many other things, Leeds fan included. Thank you very much for joining us.